right on behalf of you guys for me to just share an update a little bit more about how our family is doing. And I, honestly, I'm hesitant to do that. Part of that is not humble. It's just probably something sinful in me. Part of that is knowing there's a lot of suffering going on in our congregation, um, in each household and in each individual. We all have trials and difficulties and challenges God has laid before us for our good. Um, at the same time, you guys have been um, such a blessing, and so many have asked and continue to ask how we're doing. Just wanted to share briefly. Um, uh, Emmy, our daughter who was born uh, six weeks early um, and is three weeks old now, is doing pretty well. Um, she was born with Down syndrome and had some complications with her heart and her breathing um, and isn't out of the woods. Uh, but uh, if all goes well, she should be coming home early this week, possibly tomorrow. Um, and so we're, we're excited and happy about that. She'll be coming home most likely on some supplemental oxygen, and she has some challenges that lie ahead of her when it comes to potential issues with her heart. She may need a surgery down the road, but it's one step at a time, and it's a blessing, and it's a good sign uh, that the doctors believe she's in a place where she can come home. So um, it feels trite to say, I just, but I can't not. Thank you again um, for the love and support you've shown to me and, and our family through this time. Um, on top of the practical support that it's been, one of the things that it's done for me People have asked me, what have I learned through this time? I, I'm not even sure what I've learned about who God is in terms of how I'm dealing with these challenges and the newness of a situation like this. But one thing I have learned is you guys have given me categories for understanding what the love of the body of Christ looks like when it's extended toward one another. Um, so that when I read those places in scripture, all the one another's, I can think of you guys and I can think of how it's manifest in my own life through my relationship with you. So I thank you guys for that on behalf of my family. All right, so let's, let's dive in now to Matthew chapter 22. We'll be in verses 34 to 40 this morning. Another um, familiar passage, um, whether you grew up in church or not, probably uh, one of the more familiar ones uh, I've been saying that as, a lot as of late. This is a really important passage, or this one's probably going to be familiar, whether or not you're that familiar with your Bibles. And I've just come to realize that it's a testament to how important and universal this book is, that whether or not church and the Bible is something familiar to you, so much of what it contains is just commonplace vernacular in our culture. So this one is about what uh, is titled here, probably in your Bibles, the Great Commandment, and is the question that's posed to Jesus, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, he being Jesus, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We'll get to what I believe is the big idea to kind of summarize Jesus' teaching here this morning in a moment. But what I want to do is take a couple minutes to give you some background here that I think may be helpful and some high-level implications of the question asked and the answer given by Jesus here 
just so you guys know, a lot of times when I give a background, it's just coming from the questions I naturally approach the scripture with, like, why is this happening, or what was the point of this? And then I try to answer those, I'm like, well, that's probably going to be beneficial to other people beyond just myself. And one of the questions that I asked this time was, why this question? If what we've seen is this pattern and propensity on the part of the religious leaders to not have the best motives when it comes to how they're engaging and why they're engaging with Jesus, then what was it about this, what was underlying this question? What was their intent here with asking him this question? Well, I think as I did some study, what I learned was this was already and had been for many, many years a a debated question amongst the religious uh, leaders in Israel. What is the greatest commandment? It's just a, a handy thing, if you can, to be able to boil down this huge book into something that's a much more summarized version so that when everything else becomes difficult to understand and comprehend, we can at least run back to here's the most important thing. So that's a natural tendency, and it's a good thing to attempt to do. Um, but here's the thing. They hadn't landed on any one answer they agreed upon. Different factions and sects had rose amongst Israel's religious leaders that thought one answer was better than, other, than another. So why would they have asked this question of Jesus? The reason they were asking Jesus this question is because it was another no-win situation for him. Either his answer would offend one party and please another because there was so many different answers out there, or he would answer in such a way that he would, he, he would highlight one true and good aspect of the law, but at the expense of another. He would just have to get something wrong here. So this is why they were asking him this question, because it would inevitably, in their minds, alienate him from someone within the populace who loved Jesus. Now, other attempts to summarize the whole of the Bible and the law had been made already to this point. There's a book, second in importance only to the Bible, amongst the Jewish people called the Talmud. And that book is kind of a a compilation um, of the teachings of Israel's rabbis and teachers and their wisdom throughout the ages, uh, meant to shed light on, almost as a commentary would, uh, the Bible. And it's very practical in its nature, trying to unpack, okay, here's what the Bible says, here's what that means for our lives, practically speaking. And in one passage in the Talmud, it, it talks about all these different attempts on the part of Israel's religious leaders to capture and identify uh, the, the scripture that most concisely reflected what the Bible's all about, the great commandment, what the law boils down to. And I'm actually going to list some of their proposed solutions to you. I, I didn't have time to make slides for all of these things this morning, so I'll just list these off to you. You can write them down. And, and here's why you may want to write these things down. It, you could get the impression by the end here today that somehow these scriptures are like secondhand, you know, like not as good. They're really amazing and profound scriptures. Like these are great passages to turn to, to get a sense for the heart of God and especially the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, even if they don't quite make it as far as Jesus takes it today. So for example, Psalm 15, the whole of that Psalm, there's 11 principles that some of the rabbis said this best captures holistically, comprehensively the law talks about things like walking blamelessly before the Lord, speaking truth in your heart, not doing evil to your neighbor, and so on. In Isaiah 33, verses 15 to 16, there are identified six principles in there that, in the minds of some of the teachers, captured the law. Things like despising gain that is 
derived from oppressing other people and shutting your eyes from looking upon evil and so forth. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, maybe a more familiar verse to many of us here, there are three principles. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. All right, so boiling it down more and more in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1, there are two principles, keep justice and do righteousness. And then in both Amos chapter 5, verse 4, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, there were attempts to boil it down to one thing. In Amos chapter 5, seek me and live, is what that verse says. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith, which we know the Apostle Paul packs, unpacks at length throughout the New Testament in his letters, so it's important. But one thing to note, as I read anyway through all these different passages, is how there's more of an emphasis in these things on what we should be doing to fulfill the law. Now, you can't really get around that, right? Implied in a commandment is an instruction to do something, so I recognize that. But somehow, Jesus' response here tends to rise above that without negating the necessity of there being action that should complement and accompany the commandment that he gives. It transcends all the ones that I just mentioned, even if it doesn't at the same time negate that we still have a part to play and there are actions that should take place. All right, so now into Jesus' answer. First, let's just take a moment to feel the gravity of the situation, of the question that's being asked, and of who it is that is answering it. You have a question being posed here to the creator of the universe. As Colossians 1 tells us that everything was, that was created and made was made through Christ. He is the creator and sustainer of this universe, and a question is asked of him, the greatest authority figure in the history of the universe. And the question asked of him is, what is the most uh, important instruction contained in the most important and authoritative book ever written? Do you feel a little bit more now the gravity of this question and the answer that's about to be given here? Just let that sink in. This is important. And his answer is, love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's a part A and a part B to Jesus' answer, which probably took his audience a little bit by surprise. Jesus kind of goes beyond their question in his answer with a part two to his answer, which we'll unpack and talk about a little bit more later. But the part A is derived from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5, a passage that comes right after the Ten Commandments are given, uh, by God through Moses, and then in chapter 6, Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might or strength. So just a quick aside, there are some variations as to how uh, this saying in Israel is recorded, and even by Jesus. If you look at Mark chapter 12, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He lists four. Here it's just heart, soul, and mind. In Deuteronomy, it's heart, soul, and might or strength. And here's why the discrepancies don't really matter, uh, because the point isn't to parse out what each one of those things are. The point is to love God with your whole being, with everything that you are. Those were just terms meant to show the comprehensive nature with which Jesus was calling us to love God. 
All right, and so I want to make two observations here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, uh, and how it's different than all the attempts that have been made before by Israel's teachers to kind of sum up the law. Number one, all the attempts that we had just talked about in the Talmud a moment ago were more horizontal in focus about how do we treat other people, all right, about more immediately how you're interacting with others and treating them. Even walk humbly with God isn't as direct as love God. It's more of, here's how I should respond to this being, and, and, and that humility then breeds a certain way in which I'm going to interact with other people as a result. Okay? So that, that's one thing I want to point out here. Jesus actually takes a, a categorical, categorical step back from the other attempts that had been made to summarize the law, and he picks a verse not about how we should treat others primarily, but about how we should treat God as his answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? Second thing, a little bit more background to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. This was probably the most recited verse in Judaism. All right, in accordance with the two, the three verses that come after verse 5, many Jews wore this verse in these things called phylacteries, straps with a box on it that they would wear around their head and on the wrist. Looks silly, but the point was to be a present reminder of the most important things that God had said. And the number one verse that would be placed in these phylacteries was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Moses also had exhorted the people in those verses to teach this, to teach these things, the Ten Commandments, but especially this and the other commandments he'd given, to teach them diligently, teach them to your children, meditate on these things as you sit and as you walk, as you lie down and as you rise. At all times was his point. And so, to a degree, they took that seriously. This verse was ever-present in their hearts and minds, yet somehow this scripture was missed as the most comprehensive answer to the question they just posed to Jesus. It's probably because when we think of commandments, we think more about practically what should we be doing. We want to know what do we need to do to be justified? How do we treat others? But this question, this answer, um, forces more of the consideration of who are we doing these things for and why? See, this is the danger of religion that the people at Jesus' time were a victim of or had fallen into the trap of. And that is to justify the tendency, the propensity to justify ourselves by what we do, a works-based righteousness. It's noteworthy that the Pharisees here did not expect this answer. If they did expect this answer, they wouldn't ask the question to Jesus because they would have realized ahead of time there is a right answer to this question. But despite it being the most familiar and beloved passage of Scripture, they didn't expect it. And it speaks to the potential that exists in all of us for a disconnect between the head and the heart. See, we become religious in in the wrong sense, in this works-based righteousness sense, when our familiarity with truth leads to knowledge, but without change, without understanding, without an impact on our lives. Pastor Matt talked about this last week. This is a common thread and theme we've been seeing in Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. One of the things he said was they knew the scriptures by heart, but their hearts were not changed by it. This is just another example of that. I think the questions that this begs for us as pilgrims begged for me this week for us to ask of ourselves this morning is, what, what are those truths? If you're a follower of Jesus here today, what are those truths you most cherish or that kind of rise like cream to the top of the most often quoted verses in your life? 
Yet there's an impotence, a powerlessness to their impact in your life or a failure to really understand and apply them correctly. Now, that's not a guilt trip. That's just a sober call for us to reflect that maybe the most important truth that we need for life change isn't something that we've yet to discover, but it's something that we've grown too familiar with and that we need to revisit with fresh eyes and an open heart. Jesus' answer then here is a radical recalibration of Israel's understanding of a familiar yet misunderstood passage that they'd been missing the point of, and it totally caught them off guard. It was not the answer that they expected, but it made sense. It's interesting when you read Mark's account of this, we're given a little bit more details in his interaction with the the lawyer or the scribe here, and that he ultimately affirms Jesus' answer. He's like, yep, that's actually right, showing on his part anyway a bit of openness in his heart. So there's part A, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Then there's part B, and this is what makes Jesus' answer, the love your neighbor part, in combination with love God, this is what makes his answer even more unique and more beautifully complex, the pairing of these two things together. In short, Jesus is basically saying here, you can't really love God if you are not loving your neighbor. It's a gut check. Do I really love God? At the same time, you can't truly love your neighbor, at least with the pure, unadulterated love of God, without knowing and loving God. So these two are interdependent on one another. They're dependent on one another in a way that is so much more helpful and challenging and comprehensive than if Jesus had only answered with one or the other. And yet, there is a priority between these two that Jesus makes clear here. And I want you to see that. In his answer, he doesn't answer merely, here, here you go, follow my behavior exam, behavioral example. Do the things that I do. That's the greatest commandment. Then you'll fulfill the law. He doesn't say that. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and all of your mind. This is the first or foremost commandment. And then the second is like it to love your neighbor. And there's an obvious but important implication here. You can't do that. You can't love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind without first acknowledging that there is a God and that God made himself known through the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, imagine if Jesus had only given the second commandment here as his answer to this question, love your neighbor as yourself then a person from any religion, or no religion for that matter, could say, well, sure, I'm doing that. I'm loving my neighbor, according to what I think that that means and looks like. Which, by the way, is a a hugely, probably the most popular view outside of the church of who Jesus is and what the Bible is. He's a good teacher who said some really good things, whose examples is worthy of following, and nothing more. Such is the importance of Jesus prioritizing the first of these two commandments. Yes, they are interdependent. They need one another, as we'll see and go into more detail on, but for authentic biblical Christianity to be lived out, you can't merely love others and dismiss the whole love God part, or you're actually dismissing the thing that Jesus says is the most important summary of what the Bible calls us to. Or let me put it this way. If you are truly loving God with your whole being, 
then inevitably you will love your neighbor. But conversely, you can commit acts of love toward others, and that doesn't make it inevitable that you love God with your whole being, or even acknowledge God, for that matter. So that's what's at stake if we skip over too quickly the first and foremost commandment Jesus gives here. And it will hopefully become more apparent as to why loving God is so important if we're to love our neighbors as ourselves in just a bit. All right, so those are some initial observations to lay the groundwork. The big idea, which is falling kind of in the middle today of this message, the big idea of this sermon is this, of not the sermon, but of the passage insofar as I understand it. The whole law, as it talks about in verse 40, right, if you fulfill those first and second commandments, then the whole law and prophets is fulfilled. The whole law is achieved when we love God with our whole being and is evidenced through loving others as ourselves. Let me put it a little differently. When we truly love God with our whole being, we will love others as ourselves. And when we love others as ourselves, we will fulfill the whole law. So now let's break that down. When we love God with our whole being, we will fulfill all of the other laws. I don't know about for you. For me, when I read these words from Jesus, especially that part, there's something so simple and freeing about the knowledge that when we love God and love our neighbors ourselves, we will fulfill all the things that God said we should be doing. There's something beautifully freeing and simple about that on one level. A little bit of background. Old Testament is comprised of what the Jewish teachers and rabbis over the years recognized were 613 laws that they counted up, that they were to live by. All right? To live out that many different laws, to keep track of that many laws, just to know what they are, not to mention keep track of which ones you're doing and which ones you are not doing, is overwhelming. It's a burden to live a checklist lifestyle of loving God or following God, right? But there's something incredibly freeing instead about Jesus's answer. The focus for him is not on fulfilling the checklist. The focus for him is on loving God because if we're truly loving God with our whole being, then we will naturally conform over time to all of the commandments because we will learn to love others as God loves us. But then that begs the question, which came up a lot in the Bible, of, well, what's the point then? Why do we need all these laws spelled out? Aren't they irrelevant now? Jesus, of course, on a number of occasions addresses that, saying that I've come to fulfill the law, but not abolish the law. It's still necessary. And so the answer to the question is, are they irrelevant now, is no, and here's why. Because on this side of eternity, where there's still brokenness in this world, where there's still sin in our lives, where we don't love God perfectly or understand his love for us perfectly, we need a guide, we need a tutor to be able to show us and teach us what love should look like. See, loving God with our whole being doesn't necessarily mean we love others perfectly. Loving God with our whole being means that when we fail, or when we are confronted by a scripture uh, that shows us a different version of love than the one that we previously understood, our deepest desire is to conform to this new version of love that we've been corrected by, as opposed to try to conveniently explain it away. In this sense, if we love God with our whole being, we will, over time, eventually fulfill the whole law. So there's a freedom in that. I, I hope 
I hope that's conveyed and that you're catching that here. There's a freedom in this. If, if loving God is expressed through humble openness to how he's calling you and I to live, then you will end up fulfilling the whole law. It's no longer about you and I needing to carry a checklist with you that we're checking off. The, the law is just a tutor. It's a guide for us as to what God's love looks like. And when we're confronted by it, we want to conform to it because we love God. Do you see how that works? So this brings us to the second part of the big idea, which is when we love God with our whole being, it will inevitably evidence itself through love of neighbor. So in theory, anyway, as we've talked about, that first commandment is good enough. It, It should automatically lead to the second. So why then does Jesus go beyond the scope of the initial question that's asked and, and give this second commandment after love God with all that you are. And I would say that the answer is this. It is far easier, I know, to say I love God. I love God with my whole heart and to convince myself I'm loving God with my whole heart than it is to love my neighbor in the way that Jesus describes here. So this then serves as a measuring stick for the first commandment in our lives. No doubt the majority of Jesus' audience here, especially the the Pharisees who were constantly confronting him, believed themselves to love God. But what is the measure of a genuine love for God? Jesus says it's love of neighbor, something the Pharisees were failing miserably at, not only in the way in which they had been treating Jesus along the way, but even in what we know of their treatment of the marginalized, marginalized in society and those they deemed to be sinners. So Jesus here, in giving the second part to his answer, he creates this dissonance for them through the addition of this answer. He gives them something concrete for them to really measure their love for God by, and if they had any self-awareness at all, and if they had any awareness of Jesus' previous teaching on what it means to love your neighbor, then they should have been deeply humbled and convicted by this measurement because you can't really love God if you don't really love your neighbor. Nowhere is that clearer in the New Testament than in John, the apostle, one of Jesus' disciples, letters that was written much later. And he undoubtedly had this scene in mind, which he was present for in hearing Jesus' answer to this question, when he writes these words in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. He says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I see the need for Jesus to give the second commandment here as an evidence that the first is actually happening in our lives. Not that loving your neighbor is a guarantee of love for God, but you absolutely can't love God if you aren't even able to love your neighbor, is what he's saying. But if a genuine love for God is evidenced by love for others, then let's make sure we understand what that love looks like, what Jesus means for that love to look like. So I want to give you, as we near close here, three observations from this passage about Jesus' teaching and meaning elsewhere and here on love. What does love of your neighbor actually mean? And the first is this. What kind of love is it? It's a love that's genuinely concerned for the needs 
and the desires of others, even on par with your own. That's the part that so struck me this week as I was considering Jesus' words. In verse 39, the second part of Jesus' answer, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I don't know if this is the case for anyone else here. I've kind of in the past stumbled a, a little bit on that as yourself part because it seems a bit counterintuitive relative to what the rest of the Bible teaches about love, right? It almost seems to be enabling or condoning some sort of selfishness or self-love that would seem to be unhealthy. Like this is about we're supposed to love ourselves in some way. But here's what we need to see. Jesus's main point here isn't love yourself. We're already really good at that. Jesus says here, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the question is, how is it that we tend to love ourselves? And the answer answer is we love ourselves very naturally. The point here isn't to promote self-love. We don't need any help with that. The point here is to to say, to note how natural self-love is and how natural it is to have desires and needs and longings, most of which are good. They're not bad. It's just natural. We're always thinking about these things. So Jesus is saying, that's the way in which we're to love others. That's to be your posture toward your neighbor. A couple of scriptures probably familiar, perhaps, with similar themes. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, Paul says here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves, as more significant than yourself. Wow. Let each of you, he goes on to say, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul again, verses 28 and 29, context here is marriage and how a husband is to interact and relate to his wife. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. The idea here is this. When we love God with our whole being, love for others will be as natural as it is for ourselves. So think about this. What are some of those ways in which you nourish and cherish your own body, that natural propensity? Or what are some of the self-interests you find yourself most concerned for, as Paul talked about in Philippians? I think both of these passages, all of these passages, have our deepest desires and needs in view. Desires for things like safety and security, desires for things like having a place that you can call home, desire for things like having meaningful and deep relationships with other people, Desires for rest, real rest. Desires to be satisfied, deeply satisfied in everything from base level hunger to the use of the gifts and ability that God has given you in a fulfilling way in this world. Those kinds of deep desires and needs are in view here. So here's what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying when you begin to yearn for others' needs and desires to be met to the same degree that you yearn for your desires and needs to be met, and then you take action to see those things come to fruition, then you are loving God with your whole being. That's not a you get the leftovers kind of a love. That's not a I'll love you when it's convenient kind of a love. That's not even just about being a sacrificial kind of love, though it's at least that. It's about a growing desire in you because of your love for God 
to see the desires and needs of others met on par with seeing your own desires and needs met. And that may sound impossible, but that's the kind of love Jesus says evidences wholehearted love for God. That's the kind of love Jesus says fulfills the whole law. Well, there's a second quality to this love that I want us to see, and it takes it even a step further in how radical it is. And that is that it's a love that doesn't discriminate. What we just talked about doesn't discriminate. It doesn't pick and choose those who are worthy of that kind of love and those who aren't, based upon our preference or our affinity or level of ease or comfort it is to extend that kind of love. Put differently, God-like love comes to its fullest expression when we love those least like us or even those you find least likable. Now let me unpack that for you as to where I see this in the scriptures. In the second commandment that Jesus gives here after love the Lord your God with your whole being, when he says love your neighbor as yourself, he's drawing from Leviticus 19 and he has undoubtedly the whole chapter in mind. In verse 18 of Leviticus 19, it says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here, Moses, God through Moses, God through God, not letting the sun go down in your anger towards those who are closest to you. In this context, your fellow Israelites. In our context, our church families, our biological families, the broader body of Christ outside of this church. We are not to hold grudges, but we are to love them ourselves. That scripture is Jesus. But Jesus also undoubtedly had a verse in mind that came a little bit later in Leviticus 19, verse 34, where it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, here the call to love your neighbor as yourself is extended much further removed to those who are like you, or not like you. Those who live in socioeconomic classes, and cultures, and countries, and religions, and political persuasion, and so forth. Those who are very different than you. Then Jesus takes it one step further with what he's already talked about love and that's general love. Here, Jesus puts those we would consider our enemies into the position of those we should consider our neighbors. And so, those we should love in this way ourselves. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So I would argue that from everything we've just seen and everything that we've just talked about, that what Jesus is saying here is this, that if evidence of loving God with a whole being is loving our neighbor as ourselves, and loving our neighbor as ourselves looks like a genuine concern for the need, their needs and desires on par with your own, and not discriminating who we show that concern for, then what Jesus is saying here is that evidence of your and my love 
communion now in a moment, in which those who have received this love, received the love of God through believing on Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, are invited to come forward and be reminded of this otherworldly, undeserved love, which is enough to fuel your own love for God, and enough to fuel your love of neighbor as yourself, even if that neighbor is somebody who is acting We'll have two songs to come forward, and you can take a broken piece of masa and dip that into the wine of the juice, which represents Jesus' body broken on the cross for you, his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. And as you do, may God nourish you again with a reminder of his great love, his unfathomable love, his undeserved love. so that we can love our neighbor not as an attempt to fulfill a child, 